This is Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder. Object to the test! John Templeton. Buy low, sell high. Fear, that's the other guy's problem. And Dr. Miller. George Soros. Paul Peter Jones. Peter Lynch. People wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500? Because they're sheep. And sheep get slaughtered. For this episode, my guest is Raul Powell, CEO and publisher of The Global Macro Investor and CEO and co-founder of Real Vision TV. Raul has one of the more fascinating backgrounds in the finance industry. He was essentially mentored by the likes of Louis Bacon, Julian Robertson, and Paul Tudor Jones, among other hedge fund legends. In this episode, we talk about global macro investing, what it is, what makes it unique, and what makes it valuable to all sorts of investors. Raul discusses the greatest trade he ever witnessed and how all of this has helped shape his investment framework. We also talk about some of Raul's favorite investment ideas and also what he sees as an obvious and massive risk to investors today. So please enjoy my conversation with Raul Powell. Raul, welcome to the uh, the podcast. I'm, I'm really honored to have you on um, on the show. I've been a huge fan of Real Vision since you guys first started it. And uh, Real Vision was honestly one of the uh, you know main inspirations for me starting this. So um, it's an honor to have you on the show and thanks for being here. Not at all. I mean, to be honest, when I saw that you launched a podcast, I shot you a Twitter message saying, well, when am I on it? So I actually begged to come on it. So I'm pleased to be here. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. And then immediately I said, awesome. I'd love to have you on. So, um, you know, I, I, I've um, heard, a, heard a ton of interviews that you've done and um, been really impressed with your thought process and stuff. One of the things that I, I heard you mention recently was um, you, you, you believe that when you start your career in finance is really important to your development or your mindset as an investor or trader. Can you talk a little bit about when you started uh, in the industry and how that uh, really shaped your philosophy uh, toward the markets? Yeah, that, that, you know, that's an absolutely valid thing. Is I started in 1990, so a lot of your listeners won't know what that means, but the few of us who have been around for a while knows that that was a nice recession, and it was a banking recession. There was a savings and loans crisis in the US, and in the UK, where I was brought up, there was a, you know, people were getting tipped out of banking. That was after the period of the racy 80s. So I, I'd grown up with this period of, you know, finance is cool. This is where the, the guys drive the Porsches, make all the money, get all the chicks. And so I thought, you know, finance, that's what I want to do, you know, knowing nothing as a 17, 18, 19, 20-year-old. Uh, but when I did fi- finally graduate from university, it was a recession. And I couldn't get a job. In, in the financial world, and my degree wasn't good enough. It was not from a great university. Um, but when I did get into markets, it was actually for a company called Dow Jones Tellerate, which uh, was is much like Reuters is now. In fact, part of it was absorbed by Reuters or Bloomberg. So it was a you know a, a financial technology company that that supplied you know charting tools and news feeds and and price uh, price feeds that kind of stuff. So I got a job there um, as a graduate trainee. And I started on a technical analysis product. And that was the best thing that ever happened to me because I'm a very visual person and it allowed me to suddenly see markets. So I didn't need to know the history of markets. I hadn't needed to be around for the last 30, 40 years. What I could do immediately was know where every market had been, what was going on right now. 
And that for me was a huge advantage. But that period of time was a period of recession. We had a, the Sterling crisis. We had the ERM crisis. We had a number of big things that happened. And then 1994, the bond crisis. And it makes you a, a cynic. A cynic of financial markets, i.e. that they don't just go up. If you'd started your career in the early 90s, or let, let, let's say from 94 onwards, you'd have known nothing but low volatility gains. So you were wholly unprepared for the year 2000 when it came along, and also for 2008. But something like myself, you know, we kind of really intuitively understood the ups and downs of the business cycle and the ups and downs of markets. So that was, it really helped me. A lot of hedge fund managers have always been comfortable with the short side and comfortable questioning the narrative. And it comes from often of where you started in your career. So that's how I started. We, I, I, that just struck me because I started in um, early, late, late 96, early 97. And, you know, then it's Asian crisis and long-term capital management and the dot-com bust, you know, kind of in the first few years of my career. And, and those things definitely shaped how I look at the markets. Um, it doesn't so make us you, bears necessarily. It just makes us more susceptible to question the narrative, which I think is the important point. Yeah. And so question the narrative, you, by that you mean, you know, there's a narrative driving, you know, underlying the markets that people used to rationalize buying this or that. And, and so understanding, understanding that narrative is, is key to um, uh, making money during, during that environment. Well, yeah, right? I, mean, I, I find that, you know, people, people create false narratives all the time, such as don't fight the Fed or quantitative easing only drives up asset prices. And quantitative easing was going to be inflationary, whatever it may be. And these are held as truisms by most participants because they don't do their homework or question them. And what the job of someone like myself and yourself is to question these narratives. You know, is that really right? And it proved not to be with quantitative easing, for example, because at first commodities were going up and then they didn't. So why didn't they inflate commodity prices, but they did equity prices, well, something's not consistent with the narrative. And so I just look at narratives all the time and question them and make sure that the narrative is a true narrative or is it just a false assumption? Well, that's fascinating because I literally have had accounts created on Twitter and it, it appears to me that th their entire purpose for existing is to reply to every one of my tweets telling me that central banks will never let asset prices fall ever again. <laughs> and so that's, you know, that's a narrative that I'm hearing consistently from a number of people. And, and uh, you know, Look, uh, those of us who grew up under the, the Greenspan era, you know, that was the narrative that started coming, the Fed put, the Greenspan put. But I know, having been through you know, 2000, 2008, is those puts were just narrative. In the end, they accounted for nothing. You know, the market fell 40% in 2000, and whatever it fell in 2008, where was the put? It didn't actually account for anything. So people have to realize it's a false narrative, but they want to believe in it. Right. Well, and, and, and the, uh, you know, markets believe in it for a time, and, you know, that, you know, but... 
Then you have someone like Stan Druckenmiller who says, you know, the greatest, the biggest money he made in his career was taking advantage of, you know, what he called central bank mistakes. And, you know, you, you read Jim Rogers, you know, say things like, you know, whenever a central bank does something, go the other way. So clearly, you know, there, that, that's a narrative that has a, uh, a shelf life and it's, it's worked for now. But, um, you know, the idea that they'll never allow asset prices to ever decline again is, is interesting to, to, to think about that sentiment in the markets right now. But I, I want to come back to, um, you start, so you started as, uh, in, in technical analysis kind of right off the bat then. Yeah, absolutely. So and, and, and charts and learning the value of charts. Yeah. And very quickly I learned that I could see everything in a chart and I could see everywhere. So I could look at any market in the world, any currency, any commodity, any asset price anywhere and understand it to a certain degree. So that was a huge competitive advantage. And then I started then teaching myself about technical analysis and, and started then teaching traders about technical analysis because I knew a lot about the product that I was supporting, a product called Teletrack. And so there was me getting exposed to you know, the head of prop trading at Goldman in London and teaching him how he used Teletrack to you know, make better trading decisions, which was hilarious, obviously, because I knew absolutely nothing. But I did knew no technical analysis. And then when I, I managed to get my first job in finance working for a, a brokerage firm called James Capel, which was the stockbroking firm for the Queen, but it was part of HSBC. And I was on the equity derivative desk, uh, on the stock index derivative desk. I realized that suddenly, even though I was now put in an unfamiliar environment of a dealing, a dealing room, I actually could follow what was going on very rapidly because of the technical analysis. And again, it gave me a great competitive advantage very early on in my career when I really knew nothing about anything. And, and so part of that, uh, that process was bringing technical analysis to people who weren't otherwise using it or had heard of it. Um, interesting. And, and so uh, what was that? Um, I guess, how did you evolve from there to you worked for Goldman Sachs for a time? How, how, did, how did you get from there here to there? Yeah, so what happened was um, I started to speak to some uh, hedge funds. This is the very early 90s. And I started to get involved in some of the you know, fantastic trades with people like Tiger um, and Tudor and a few others in the early days. And I found that I could speak their language because many of those guys looked at technical analysis as well. So anyway, so I moved the team to NatWest, another UK bank. And the moment I moved this team to NatWest, I was running the team at James Capel from a very early age. Um, 120 people joined from Morgan Stanley. And so the, the, the head of the desk at the time, or the head of equity derivatives at the time, said, hey, listen, Raoul, look, the job that you had doesn't exist anymore. What do you want to do? I said, you know what, I just want to, I just want to cover hedge funds. So he said, sure, who do you want to cover? And this guy it was American, a guy called Rick Goldsmith, who was a legend at the time. I said, naively, well, I want to cover Tudor and Soros and Tiger and long-term capital and all of these guys. He said, fine, come to New York next week, I'll set you up. The following week, I'm there in Paul Tudor Jones's office, shaking hands, meeting Lewis Bacon from More Capital, uh, meeting you know all the guys from Long Term Capital, uh, the guys from Soros, and from then on, my career took off because macro is what I understood. These were mainly macro guys with a few relative value guys and other bits and pieces, and I just realised that this was exactly how I thought of the world. Um, and then I got poached from uh, from Nat West to go and. Um, take over the equity derivative business for hedge funds at Goldman. 
and build that business up to probably the largest business in Europe at the time uh, at Goldman Sachs. And there I got the opportunity, essentially it was the best opportunity on earth because I could call anybody up and say, you know, this is Ralph from Goldman, you know, we're not doing business with you, let's do business. And luckily I knew what I was talking about at this point. Um, You know, we'd gone through, by this stage we'd gone through the bond crisis in 94. We're now going into the Asian crisis in 97, 98. And I was at the epicenter of it all. I was at Goldman Sachs and it was an incredible learning experience. I could see, I could tell and talk, talk around to the other guys at Goldman. I could see what Stan Druckenmiller was doing in every asset class based around one theme which taught me how to manage. Okay, I, got, I got to just interrupt you really quickly. I'm sorry. Uh, I, and I want to get back to that. But I have a lot of young people that ask me, you know, how do I get involved in the industry, in, you know, in the area where I want to be? So was it literally just ask and you shall receive? It was just, I, I want to work, I want to work with these guys and, and well, the firm look, made was, it happen? I, I mean, I was lucky, you know, everybody needs luck in their career. And the luck is to be at the right place in the right time. I was at the right place in the right time for hedge funds. You know, hedge funds was starting to grow. There was nobody who knew how to service them, and I developed that skill set. And so, therefore, de facto, I became the guy who all the hedge funds spoke to in Europe. So, you know, right now, if you say, you know, I want to deal with macro funds, well, it's it's not that easy anymore. It's not that easy to go and work for hedge funds anymore. Um, I just, it's not the business that it was because it's not where the great opportunity lies anymore. Um, so it, it is much more difficult, and I, I hate to be a downer for people, but you know, a I could never pass uh, onto the graduate training scheme of Goldman Sachs any longer because my CV was never good enough. So yeah. if, it was, if it was me now, I, I could never get into Goldman Sachs. And additionally, I just don't think those opportunities are there because that was the growing market, and people need to look for the next growing market, the next big opportunity where things are really going to change. Uh, as opposed to look back in the glory days of the past, um, right. where you know those those opportunities don't exist any longer. Well, so then that begs the question: What do you think is you know for young people looking to get interested, get into careers in in, in finance? What what is the big opportunity for them? Sadly, finance is going by the way of technology. So technology is the answer to most things, um, and a lot of what you and I knew from our past lives are being done by technology. So technology really is the answer. It's, you know, there's, there will be less and less human interaction over time within the industry. So that's problematic. There is always a place for the human touch, but you have to be truly excellent at what you do. Um, I also think as the baby boom generation retires and takes their money out of financial markets, that's the largest amount of money in the history of financial markets that has to leave. So the finance industry overall will shrink. So I'm not sure really the finance industry is the great opportunity. However, out of all of this, once you take out this huge kind of um, huge bulge of people out of the market, you're going to create opportunity again. So to be around for that opportunity is the big opportunity. So, you know, if you want to become a trader, you actually have to almost launch a hedge fund yourself or run your own personal capital, however small that may be, and do it like Paul Tudor Jones did when there was no industry there. Because I think the industry will move away from the institutionalized hedge fund business that it is today and go back to return seeking, which it's not anymore. It's now asset seeking. 
So, you know, it's a, it's a really complicated, complicated world, and I just don't think it's an easy place for people to get into unless they're of a technology background. Gotcha. Well, you know, it's it's interesting that, you, you know, you said one of the reasons why you got into finance was it's that, uh, you know, it's either finance or rock and roll, right? Money for nothing and chicks for free, right? Is it kind of the, well, the, like the, the best allure? Thing is, the best but, thing you know, is, the, I think the, I, I'm of the mindset that, you know, the best days of rock and roll are behind us, too. So it's kind of kind of the same thing. But Yeah, I'm kind of the same. And it was interesting. It was, uh, I was 21 years old, just finished university, and a friend of my father said to me, he said, so, Raoul, what do you want to do? And I said, well, you know, I might follow dad and go into, you know, fast-moving consumer good marketing, you know, to Mars or somewhere like that, or I might go and work for a bank. And he looked at me and said, okay, let me give you one piece of advice. He goes, you can go and work for Mars, amazingly impressive marketing firm, and you know what, you'll get free Mars bars, or you can go to a bank and get free money. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's not a tough choice after it that. Wasn't a tough yeah. choice. That's right. right. Well, maybe, let's get free, let's get back to you. Maybe the free money's on the west coast these days. Maybe the right. maybe the free money's in the technology business and not the finance business. It's probably with all these ish, initial coin offerings and things. It does sound like free money going on going on there. But yeah. uh, that's just a scam. That's different. Right, right. Um, well, let's get back to the days at uh, at Goldman. So you find yourself uh, at Goldman in in Europe and talking to Julian Robertson and and Paul Tudor Jones. You know, uh, what what was that like? I mean, how how what did you learn through that? Well, it was like being taught acting by Robert De Niro and you know James Dean, and it was extraordinary. You know, because they would call up, and I would speak to Paul Jones almost every day. And, he, you know, he'd say, well, what do you think's going on? What's interesting? You know, I would call that the, the, the guy who's the legendary ex-vice chairman of Salomon's Stanley Shop Corn. I'd wake him up in the morning at three o'clock in the morning, get him out of bed and say, Stan, something going on in the DAX, you need to do something. Um, and, you know, these guys, for some reason, listened to me, which was very flattering. But B, I just got to see all of their trading styles. So the first thing I learned, everybody starts with a chart. You know... People think that you know, there's a different world out there where people are doing a lot more fundamental analysis. No, no. Everybody, almost every single person starts with a chart first. So you know, the chart is your way, your guide to the world. Then you do your homework. Then you build your economic framework or your asset price framework around it. Um, and so that was always fascinating for me to see how these guys built their frameworks. Then how they built their portfolios how they would look for the second, third, fourth order effects. The first order effects, the market gets those quickly. But the second, third, fourth order effects, that's really where the money lies. And that's where the clever stuff lies. And I saw some of the cleverest trades of all time, particularly over the Asian crisis. I mean, I'm staggered how good people like Lewis Bacon were in trade construction. I mean, just extraordinary. To give you a great story, this is going to get a little bit complex. So hopefully people can follow me. But the greatest trade I ever saw was uh, from Lewis Bacon. And it was in South Africa. I got a call from the head of trading, uh, who was another legendary figure. He called me up and said, Raoul, sell South Africa. I'm like, what kind of order is sell South Africa? He goes, just start selling everything. Then calls me back 30 seconds later, goes, whatever you do, don't sell futures, just sell equities. I said, do you want to look like the index? How do I do this? What stocks do you want? He says, I don't care. Just start selling. So we start selling. He calls me back and goes, how much have you done? I said, well, I don't know, maybe five million bucks. He goes, no, no, start really selling. So this goes on and on and on for three straight days where 
we end up selling, I don't know, call it a billion dollars worth of South African equities. I mean, it was crazy. You know, we were just hitting every bit in the market. And they weren't trying to manipulate the price. They were just, you know, just get this done. So the dust settles. I say, I call the guy and say, what was that about? He goes, I can't tell you. Just make sure you just monitor these positions. You know, we'll, we'll take them off at some point. So then several months later, I get the phone call, buy South Africa. I'm like, okay. And off we go. We start taking off all the positions. And it's all a bit messy again. The markets are rallying. You know, last time they collapsed because under the weight of the selling pressure. And three days later, we're out of all positions. And I say, okay, Chris, what, what, what was this all about? He said, I said, look, you made like 6%, but you took, took you three days in, three days out, hugely messy. It was expensive. It was complicated. That's clearly not a clever trade. He goes, no, no, it was a genius trade. I said, why? What happened? I said, you made 6%. He goes, no, no, we made about 56%. I was like, explain. He said, well, the bet was not the stock market. It was the currency. There were two currencies in South Africa, the Finrand, the financial rand, and the commercial rand. One you could use for trade, the other one you couldn't, and they had different interest rates, much like there is in China onshore and offshore now. So we wanted to borrow the onshore rand, which was which was the currency that was, the, sorry, the offshore rand, which was collapsing. Um, but interest rates were like 20-odd percent. So it's super expensive to borrow. But if you borrowed stocks, it cost you half a percent to borrow. And you got given the rand. So when you sell a stock, you get given the currency, so you can then sell the currency. So they made 50% on the currency and 6% on the equities. So it was what it was was incredibly clever trade construction. And it was then that I learned that you know, the knock-on effects are your friends. Think through things, see how things are done, and you'll make much better opportunities of it. Well, that's a fantastic point because, you know, there's the idea, right? The, the, the concept that comes to you about, okay, I want to put this trade on. And then there's how you execute that. And it's, those are two different things. And uh, so, yeah, that's, that's, that's fascinating. So we're talking about global macro investing, which is your specialty. Yes. Um, Although I was, you... I was also at the time dealing with a lot of the relative value funds. You know, my biggest customer probably outside of some of the big global macro funds was long-term capital. So I was dealing with, I was at the epicenter of the long-term capital trades, both putting them all on and then taking them all off again when the, uh, when the big unwind of, of that firm happened as well. So I was at the epicenter of all of that as well. So, I mean, what, what was that like? Because I, you know, I was operating in the markets. I was head trader of a, of a hedge fund at the time. And I remember the, the mayhem, you know, in, in the broader markets. But uh, what, was, what was it like from the inside? Well, so I'm going to tell another story, if that's all right. Great. Um, please do. I was on a, I was still working for NatWest. My biggest client by a long way was long-term capital. They sold so much equity index volatility in every major market, it was extraordinary. And it was because there was this weird structure. Now, for example, you're seeing all of these uh, structured funds and pension funds selling volatility. At that time, they were buying volatility for these specific types of products. And it was falsely creating high volatility. So long-term capital came in and said, we want to sell all of this long data volatility because it was so far away above its mean. 
So every day you get these incredible orders to sell all this huge amounts of stuff. And you know, as a salesman, it was incredibly lucrative for me. So anyway, cut to about a year later, I'm on a boat in, on a stag weekend in Ireland. And all my mates on the boat are all in financial markets. And we were all chatting away. And I said, hey, listen, speaking to a friend of mine who was the head of Bund trading at Deutsche Bank. I said, who's your biggest client? He said, oh, long-term capital. I said, how big are they? He goes, I don't know, we've probably got about $10 billion with them. Now, bearing in mind that long-term capital were about a $3 billion fund at the time, and that was big, I was like, wow, that's big. And I knew that in NatWest, we had maybe $2 billion in equity derivatives alone. Then I asked a friend of mine at Salomon Smith Barney, he said, what do you guys have? And he had like a billion. And I went around this boat, and we figured out that there was $15 billion of trades on the boat alone. And that was amongst a few friends. I was like, oh, my God. And went back wow. to the office on the Monday, slightly hungover from the stag weekend, and said, listen, this is something dangerous here. I don't trust this whatsoever. And lo and behold, soon enough, the entire thing blew up. When it blew up, I was at Goldman. And the day that they went under, uh, I got called to a meeting at Trump Towers. The, the, there was a restaurant there. I can't remember the restaurant called. But uh, and there was... Uh, several of the senior partners of long-term capital who I knew by that stage, both from my Goldman relationships in NatWest and some of the partners from Goldman. And they were talking about how that Goldman were going to have to go and help unwind long-term capital management. And so I was involved with the unwind process as well. Um, I wasn't one of the people who, who moved to long-term capital, but I was one of the liaisons on my side, obviously, because I had all the liquidity on the equity derivative side to unwind all of this big mess. So, yeah, I saw the whole thing, and it was apocalyptical at various points. So when you, you know, just kind of by accident discovered the, the leverage that was being employed, did, you, did the firm start to, you know, uh, protect themselves against, against that, uh, the unwinding of that leverage? I mean, I, or, or know, how did that work out? I think I'd left. I left around that time. So it was kind of 97. I think I'd left and went to Goldman. So I think gotcha. I sidestepped the whole thing. But I did explain to the firm. I said, listen, you need to be super careful with what's going on here. And then NatWest got bought out, actually, by Bankers Trust and then Deutsche Bank. So, well, so I, I want to come back also to the, to the idea of uh, global macro investing because I know this is your specialty. You talked about the, the South African trade. Can you just, um, you know, for listeners, explain what is global macro investing? And, uh, you know, for the... For, People yeah. who don't aren't familiar. Yeah, global macro investing is essentially using macroeconomics, which sounds complex, but it's basically looking how economies in the world work and how they move asset prices. So on a simple level, if the US economy is weak, then you'll tend to find that the bond market is strong, i.e. yields are falling, interest rates are probably falling, and you'll probably find that the equity market is falling. The knock-on effects may be that there is less housing being built, so maybe the price of copper is falling. Maybe the funding markets are drying up, so the price of credit is falling. You might find that because of the funding markets drying up, that the price of agricultural commodities are falling because farmers are getting squeezed because they have to borrow money. Um, and so that is what global macro is, but that's, it's, it's on a global basis. So we have the most beautiful thing, I think, in the world, which is the whole world is a 3D, ever-moving jigsaw puzzle that can never be solved. You can only solve it for brief glimpses of time, and then it dissolves again, and you have to resolve the puzzle. 
So this is why it attracts so many smart people, because it is such a beautiful intellectual pursuit. Now, it's incredibly infuriating. You get it wrong, you screw it up. But there's always that chance of getting that jigsaw puzzle perfectly aligned and seeing the picture clearly. And when you see the picture clearly, there's a whole world of opportunities that lay out ahead of you. So that's what Global Macro is. And it's betting on economic shifts to generate returns in asset prices. And, you know, this is uh, probably a total, you know, softball question. But why do you think uh, Global Macro is especially valuable today? Well, I would say it's always valuable because unless you know how the world works, the economies are working, you don't understand asset price returns. There was a great, uh, just on the Real Vision podcast, actually, um, the Adventures in Finance podcast, um, I just recorded one about long-term capital itself. The reason long-term capital blew up was because they didn't understand the macro. What was the macro they didn't understand is how the Asian crisis would take liquidity from the market. Liquidity is a very macro thing. And that liquidity came out and all of their trades, which were supposedly uncorrelated, alpha-generating trades, fell apart. So it is always important to understand the macro. Now, the macro now is when you start to get extremities. I mean, macro is, is all about looking for extremes within this whole global puzzle and trying to place bets on those extremes reverting back to some sort of mean. So when you've got the most valued or second most valued overvalued stock market in history that's interesting when you have a business cycle i.e. the ups and downs of gdp that is the second to third longest in all of history you know it's going to end soon so that's interesting you need to be on alert for that because when the business cycle ends the equity market goes down there's a whole number of things you know the world is the most levered it's ever been So what happens when you have the downside of the business cycle, when the equity market falls, when there's a lot of leverage? Well, that's complicated too, and that's a global macro problem. Central banks are a global macro problem because they're controlling the supply of money, which is a global macro issue. How China plays into the world is a global macro thing. So global macro is almost everywhere and everything right now. Almost every part of the market is global macro. Um, Interesting enough, it's a very global macro environment, But most global macro managers aren't making any money because there are very few trends out there. But when they come, you'll find that these guys will be generally the guys who will capitalize on it. Yeah, well, you tell me, I'm mainly an equity, you know, focused guy. And, you know, but for me... I think we've seen the massive, you know, financialization um, in the United States, you know, corporate debt, uh, equity valuations are, you know, just off the charts. And you mentioned, you know, demographically, we've probably seen the peak uh, of this, you know, the financial industry, financialization. For me, I, I think I see so many investors focused literally on U.S. stocks and bonds, and that's it. And what's interesting from a global macro perspective, there's so many other asset classes and opportunities out there that I see it. You know, if if we are at a you know peak, you know U.S. financialization uh, moment uh, right around now, then um, you know these uh, this is a terrific time to be looking at, at other opportunities over you know a five to ten year time frame. Would you would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, let's first go to that demographics thing. People have to realize is the largest generation of savers on earth, who are the largest generation of investors, are all turning seventy in the next five to eight years. When they turn seventy, they tend to retire. At seventy and a half, you almost get tax penalties for not retiring. 
So the probability of this wave of retirees coming is huge. That's going to massively shift consumption in the U.S. economy, savings in the U.S. economy. Um, it'll massively shift how much money goes into stock markets, which will be a lot less. There'll be more sellers than buyers. So it, it's and it's predictable. We know when it's going to happen, what it's going to do, to a certain extent. So that means that you should be looking ahead. If you're young, what you don't want to do is invest in what everybody else is investing in. What you want to do is have either the firepower to invest in things that get beaten up. And there were some great opportunities up, up until recently, countries like Greece. You could buy every single company in Greece for less than the price of Bed Bath & Beyond in the US. It's crazy. Um, so there are opportunities. India. India has demographic tailwind. Yeah, it's an expensive market. Yes, it will go down at various points. But it'll be like the US was over the last 30 years, which is a extremely, or maybe 40 years, an extremely buoyant market, a market you can't keep down, you shake your head at saying, how does it keep getting up? That'll be India. Um, so that's, a you know, while China, on the other hand, has a bad demographic. So India's interesting. There's countries that people don't want to invest in now, like Iran, which I think are incredible opportunities, a PE of five and a half, one of the cheapest markets in the world. Now, Iran may sound crazy to most people, but you know, when we first started in our careers, Poland was crazy. You know, that was still part of the Soviet Union. Yet, Poland ended up being the best performing market in Europe for 20 years. Um, so you need to understand how things change over a longer, longer extended period of time. So there are opportunities everywhere. Agriculture is the cheapest it's ever been in inflation-adjusted terms, ever. So, you know, we had an interview on the Real Vision podcast with Alan Boyce, uh, an ex-Soros um, trader who also is involved in ags and owns a uh, is the chairman of one of the soros big soros ag businesses Um, and he talked about the aging population of the farmers in america sooner or later these farmers are going to die out and they're going to end up selling their farms at rock bottom prices because they can't afford to run them the opportunity in farming for the 30 years to come past then is going to be extraordinary because nobody wants to be a farmer anymore you always want to do things that nobody wants to do Certainly things that have long-term store of value in it, and farmland's one of them. So there's, you know, there's opportunities everywhere, whether you want it to be racy, like Iran, whether you want it to be more normal, like India, whether you want it to be bombed-out markets where there's a good rebound, you, know, you can be the, the distressed investor, like Greece, or whether it's the, the whole career thing, which is like being a farmer and maybe growing you know, certain, certain organic crops plus you know, um, free-range beef, things like that you know there's opportunities everywhere in the world it's not necessarily just in the thing that you're looking at which is the u.s stock market so and i want to come back to that in the demographics but what is these you know um i guess more um specifically what is the framework that gets you to ideas like india iran and bitcoin i know that you owned it bitcoin um and and recently just just sold it well i mean what is the framework that gets you to those ideas firstly we start with a chart i think i've told you that now five times it's always yep. start with a chart so look <laughs> okay. at every chart in the world and say what's interesting why is it doing that why is greece going top left to bottom right you know, those charts interest me. You know, things that are cheap. You know, stock markets don't go to zero, except in the case of civil war. So, you know, I do that first. I then also have my economic framework, 
which is the real crux of what I do, which is my business cycle framework, which is understanding the ebb and flow of global economies. Now, I use the ISM in the US as my, as my guide to the business cycle. ISM is a great forecaster of GDP. And basically, it goes up and down. You can ask a small child uh, you know, about GDP, and he'll say, well, it goes up and down. It's obvious. But you ask an economist, and they tell you GDP goes in a straight line because they forecast it. It's kind of weird. All right. Um, but the point being is I use that as my framework with then demographics, debt, and a whole load of other stuff. So India. So how do I get to India? So here I am looking at the world through the Western debt, demographics, deflation mindset that I've got for that particular region. And I thought I'd get a map of the world and cross out all the countries with bad demographics. I then crossed out all the countries with bad debts. And what materialized... was a map of the world that had a bit of South America in it, very little bit. Most of Africa, but that's for a different story. But really, it was the old monsoon uh, spice routes based around India. If you spin the, the globe with India at the middle and look at the map of the world, all of the countries around the Indian Ocean, whether it's the Swahili coast of Africa or whether it's going up to Iran or the trade routes that went all the way across to Morocco, or whether it's down to the financial centre of Singapore, or whether it's the agricultural centre of Indonesia and Malaysia, all of those countries, which happen to be actually Islamic countries, because of the spread of Islam was based on the spread of trade, those countries have the best demographics in the world, the youngest populations, the highest saving rates, the lowest debt to GDP, the lowest household debt ratios. They were like a perfect scorecard. And not only that, they had all the oil, all the gas, all the natural resources, all the minerals, all the agriculture, all the population, all the financial centers. They didn't need anybody else. So that made me go, wow, here's a framework that nobody's seen, that it's kind of like suddenly the jigsaw puzzle came together and I could see it. And India was at the center of it. So I'd been looking, I'd been bullish, relatively bullish India anyway because of the demographic, and I'm half Indian, so I've spent some time there. But... What then happened is I saw this story about Indian demonetization. And there we go, the narrative, the false narrative. This is bad. They're taking away people's freedoms. This is one step away. I'm like, no, no, this is not America or the UK or Germany where they banish banknotes to tax you. This is something different. And then I realized this whole demonetization story was coming And the fact that India was going to leapfrog everybody by going to be able to pay for a pint of milk using a fingerprint. And also, using your fingerprint, you could have your medical records online, the know your client stuff, all of your details, your driving license, your passport, everything. I realized that everything had changed for India and that they had truly leapfrogged the world. And that was a signal for me is, okay, here's an opportunity. So, so as you can tell, there's a number of layers that I look at these kind of things. Where did Iran come from? Very simply, I looked at every single stock market in the world. What was the cheapest? Iran. Okay. How did that fit into my worldview? Well, I know many Iranians are all very smart people. I don't see Iranians invading other countries. There's no real aggression around them apart from the news narrative. Um, I also realized that they were a self-sufficient economy that was growing pretty well, considering the world had cut them off for 20-odd years. Uh, And they fitted perfectly into my monsoon map of the world, where India and Iran have always traded. 
They've traded for millennia. In fact, the Iranian rulers ruled India for several hundreds of years. So that made me start writing about Iran, saying I'm interested in Iran, cut to somebody inviting me to come out to Iran, a Iranian investment bank based in London. Uh, and there I, I then travelled around Iran, kicked the tires and realised the narratives about Iran were almost entirely false and met some incredible people there, um, investors who were also on that trip, real true frontier, pioneer, incredible investors. And, uh, and that led me to that. So this is how I find these things. So it really sounds like, you know, to a large extent, it's just traditional kind of fundamental analysis, which is something is cheap and the longer term fundamentals look healthy. Yeah. yeah, Yes. I mean, that's the basic framework of everything, right? Now, yes, occasionally you get something like Bitcoin. And Bitcoin is when you need to spin your head and question everything you know and take a leap of faith. Uh, and those are very different. There's less of those around. Uh, and so Bitcoin, you know, I, I was pretty early in Bitcoin um, and then sold out recently into this big up move um, where I think the narrative may have changed now. And I'm not sure that the narrative is, is, is any longer correct. But there's very few of those. Most, most of the world is all about relative value. And, you know, one of the things I do, and Paul Tudor-Jones taught me this, which was look at relative value charts, the price of one thing versus another. Because guess what? The price of wheat and gold have had a relationship for several thousand years. And you can get charts going back about a thousand years of both. In fact, you can get wheat charts going back to Egyptian times, and you can get gold charts going back then as well. And you can price assets versus another. What's cheap, what's expensive? Equities have a relative valuation versus other things because we will have a, a marginal propensity to own things that are cheaper over time than more expensive, and eventually people will make that switch. Um, you know, well, yeah. And that, and that just, uh, you know, I, I, looking at the wheat-gold ratio, that's fascinating. But it, it just makes me think of, you know, one of my favorite charts that I just keep coming back to over the last several months is just the ratio of financial assets to real assets. And it's pretty, pretty apparent that real assets, you know, have maybe never been cheaper. Or you probably, well, easier to think about it, financial assets have never been more expensive relative to real assets. Yeah, and it in also history. depends what real assets, right? Because if you go back to the 2007, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, price of art exploded. Art was never more expensive. So interesting enough, I, was having, I, I, I wrote some articles in Global Macro Investor about this. Um, the price of modern art had never been more expensive to the price of old masters. So you could basically buy you know, a room full of old masters for the price of one Jackson Pollock. It was crazy. And so there were distortions everywhere. Cars, crazy distortions in cars. Um, You know, so much so that you'd see a distortion in cars that there's a, if you ever saw the film Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, um, um, Uh, of course, Michael Caine drives around (laughs) in that Rolls Royce Corniche convertible. Right, an 80s right. Cornish convertible. I know this because I, I was living in Spain. I thought I'd love one of those because they were cheap as chips, right? So I thought, oh, yeah, maybe I'll buy one of these. And I was looking around for one. I was pricing them up. And, you know, if you price the Bentley Azure, which was the same car with a different badge on it, it was three times the price. 
because everyone wanted a Bentley because rappers drove Bentleys. But nobody wanted to drive a Rolls-Royce, even though they were exactly the same cars. And you found these distortions were everywhere. So now when people talk about real assets, I'm not sure what they're talking about anymore because most of the art is still expensive. Wine is ludicrously expensive. Property is ridiculously expensive at the high end. It's basically precious metals. The industrial metals have a different cycle. So, you know, the, the, price, of in, uh, the, the price of precious metals is not cheap nor expensive versus oil or anything else. It's maybe arguably, arguably expensive versus oil. Um, but the price of financial assets is high versus everything. So to come to your point, mm. the financial assets versus most things are expensive. But, you know, it's not necessarily against, you know, m- my guess is art outperform financial assets. Okay. So, but, but I mean, that's a, a great point because when we look at real assets, there are a lot of real assets that are very expensive. I was just looking today at, you know, price to rent ratios and residential real estate here in the U S and it's just back to the, the, uh, the bubble peak from 10 years ago. So yeah, real, I mean, real estate, everything is, is uh, a lot of things are expensive and that, and that speaks to, you know, one of two things, either the, the rest of the real assets are, are extraordinarily cheap or financial assets are just that expensive. Um, so I think but, you know, it's financial assets are the outlier, uh, yeah. with real assets, there's some relatively cheap, some relatively expensive, but financial assets and arguably properties of financial asset too net these days, uh, are wildly expensive and maybe arts a financial asset. You know, it's, it's difficult to know what's what anymore. Right. Right. Now, what are you, for these ideas, you know, um, obviously you have to have a pretty long time frame. Like, it just sounds like it from the way you're talking about Iran and India. Well, I mean, what is your typical time frame for these things? Yeah, you see, one of the things I learned, because, you know, one of the things we didn't talk about in my career is I managed a global macro hedge fund for one of the largest hedge fund firms in the world at the time. Um, and that hedge fund business was forcing people into monthly P&Ls. And to manage your monthly P&L, your basic trading cycle has to be two weeks. And again, Paul Tudor-Jones, another you know, great mentor of mine, said, I was speaking to him one time, he said, you know, the best traders in the world are the people whose trade time horizon matches their idea time horizon. And I realized that my idea time horizons were macro. So we're talking about economies. You know, every month you get one new data point. So really you need an extended period of time before data points play out. Um, and so, but I was being forced to trade two week time horizon views and it was, you know, yes, I did, I did great in the, uh, in 2000, 2001, 2002. And then by 2003 came along, you know, I was sucking wind a bit, didn't really do very well. And it was because I just couldn't match up my horizons. Um, and then I realized when I started writing The Global Macro Investor, the, the research shows that I write, that, that the great advantage that I had now, not money, managing money for other people, was that I could have a time horizon that was longer term. And there was the true arbitrage. The true alpha lay in the fact that nobody else competed with me. And my time horizon is basically six months to five years. I mean, I've been long the dollar since 2012. And I haven't traded once around it. Yeah, and I've heard you say, and I and I agree, you know, a hundred percent, that your time horizon uh, can be one of the greatest competitive advantages that you you have, especially in today's market with everybody going to passive and everything. If you actually have a time horizon that's not two weeks or two months or even two years, 
you can have a huge advantage over everyone else who has such a, a short time frame. Um, and I, and I agree with you completely too about that. That's why, uh, you know, Wall Street and hedge funds and, and things are, you know, on, on the decline yeah, so because yeah. trying to box people into that, into that just makes it is almost impossible to, to outperform. Dead, dead uh, right. I mean, if you go back to understanding, so why, why has the time horizon become so short in the industry? Because the people who are taking risk are essentially the baby boomers with their pensions and retirement savings, etc. Those guys can't take a lot of risk. So they're forcing hedge funds to take less and less risk. So returns are collapsing across the industry, but they're very diverse. They're everywhere. So returns everywhere have collapsed. So the real opportunity is to be, let's say you're a millennial, the opportunity as the millennial is to understand you have time horizon. So you can actually buy India and sit with it through the ups and downs for 20 years and you'll make 10x, which the baby boomer can't do. All the advantage lies in the millennial and how he deploys his capital in the future. So I think it's a fascinating opportunity. Well, and, and I want to, to get, get back to that too, but I, I really need to ask you, we, we talked about your process, your, your, so your daily routine must just consist of a lot of looking at charts, but clearly you do a lot of reading too. What, what um, are there, when, and probably a lot of just talking to a lot of the people you feature on Real Vision too, like you did back at uh, Goldman Sachs. So, well, I mean, what is, what is your, your, I guess, daily research process look like? <coughs> Okay, this is going to sound terrible. I don't read any research from anybody. <laughs> right, neither do I. I, mean, I, I, I literally read nothing um, purposely because I want to have a clear head. People pay, you know, I'm in this, it's a beautiful business and it's incredibly flattering that people pay me for my thoughts, you know, and it's, it's an extraordinary thing. And for that, I can't regurgitate what other people have done. Yes, occasionally I'll read bits and pieces, but very little. So what I tend to do is charts. I look at my Bloomberg charts. I know, you know, I have at any one stage, I'm looking, flipping through charts of every market around the world and every asset price, thinking about things. I use Twitter a lot because then I can get a sense of, because I don't live in a, you know, I, I don't live in New York City. I don't take the pulse of people. So I can take the pulse of the world by Twitter and I'll see some interesting things. And other times it's just by reading news stories not in financial news, because then it's old news, but it's by joining the dots between something I've read about Indian demonetization and suddenly finding this thing called ADAR, the, you know, the uh, biometric registration system, and going, okay, I get it now. So it's reading around. Things like The Economist are actually pretty good for that because they give you an underlying economic story of which you could then apply what you've seen in financial markets, and before you know it, you're figuring stuff out. So I'm, I'm very careful not to read too much research so really my day is that plus a bit of real vision stuff uh, and speaking to people just swapping ideas with people i have a round table in the cayman islands where a whole bunch of us come down maybe 30 kind of pretty well-known macro guys uh family offices uh, a few sovereign wealth funds and we sit around in the room and throw around trade ideas who's looking at what what the most interesting things in the world are and start trying to think through things like what does the demographics mean you know how could that knock on what's the trade opportunity and we end up with something like, let's go and buy trailer parks <laughs> based off a number right. of various things. And it's, you know, th that, you know th those are the ways I, I find I work better. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, I, I, 
I can um, sympathize. I live in the, in central Oregon, middle of nowhere too. So Twitter is a, a lot of value to me and as is real vision and being able to hear the thoughts of a lot of different investors because, you know, Oregon itself is not a financial, you know, mega center or anything by any means. But uh, I want to come back to this demographics idea. I know real vision has done a lot of work on the pension problems that um, the country faces. Um, you know, the uh, the Federal Reserve even put out some research a couple of years ago showing that, you know, the, the correlation between demographics and valuations in the equity markets. And they suggested that I think by 2025, you know, based on this correlation, you know, the market could trade an 8 PE, um, you know, and, and that's just a function of, like you're saying, baby, baby boomers being forced to sell off a, a lot of their um, equities uh, as they retire and have to fund their retirement. I mean, this is something I think about a lot. I, I see massive longer-term risks out there, and it's so contradictory to where we are today in the market. So uh, what are your thoughts on, on all this? I think it's the biggest story that nobody – the biggest, most predictable, most understandable story that nobody dares talk about. And I've spent a lot writing about this in Global Macro Investor. I've done a lot of work on it, and we're going to roll out something across Real Vision about – what I refer to as the pension crisis. And the pension crisis is essentially this. The baby boomers have the maximum allocation to equities they've ever had because they didn't save enough money. Because when they first started, some guys said, you don't need to save money like your parents. They were too austere. Just give it to some smart guy on Wall Street and he'll magically turn it into more money. And you don't need to save money. You can just go and borrow money and we'll all pay it off at the end. It'll all work out. Obviously, cut forward 50 years, and it didn't work out because they don't have enough savings. They borrowed too much money. They can't pay it off. But the point being is it made them take more and more risks. They bought the dip. They had to buy the dip. They had no choice to buy the dip. And the problem is, is the next downturn in the business cycle, you'll see the economy go to recession and the equity market halve, which it almost always does. But that's going to halve on the retirement date of all of the baby boom generation, and they will never be able to buy the dip again. So it's one of the most important stories in the world today. And I've looked at it from a whole number of levels. If we look at the labor force participation rate, um, it is the key driver of everything, including consumption patterns, the Federal Reserve balance sheet, inflation, and everything else, uh, including consumption of gasoline. And I've shown hundreds of charts of this. And What's amazing about the labor force participation rate, it's forecastable. It's just demographics data put forward. Nothing changes unless a whole group of the population is wiped out or they suddenly discover 50 million 50-year-olds. Uh, nothing is going to change. And what it means is more, less and less people are going to be participants in the labor force. And therefore, less and less people will consume things in the economy, will drive cars, will consume oil, also it means that there's less investors in the stock market over time. So all of these things are wildly forecastable, which is what makes me a huge deflationist over time because I do not see a way out of this. Well, you know, I, I'm one of those who um, I, I don't think the the central bankers around the world are are idiots like some propose. You know, I, mean, I think I think they're well aware of these these issues, and this is why they're. You know they're already doing everything in their power to try and. Pr I, I think they see the writing on the wall also, and and that's 
why they've, you know, I mean, we have the Fed, Janet Yellen's talked about buying stocks um, already and kind of laid the groundwork for that. What, what are your thoughts on, um, you know, central banks and how they, how they, are they aware of this? How, how are they, um, you know, likely to handle it? Well, firstly, if you know that the meteorite's hitting the earth, the last thing you can do is tell everybody because everybody right. panics. So, look, it's an exact rerun of Japan. But Japan was lucky because the rest of the world was still booming enough to support it. When the US and Europe finally goes to retirement, there's nobody to support it anymore. The, Japan, the, the Chinese are aging already, and India's just not big enough to support it, nor is the, the monsoon block of countries yet. So I'm sure the central bankers know, but it never gets mentioned. So I'm not sure whether they really have their eye on that ball. I think intuitively they kind of understand what's driving down long-term rates, uh, why consumption over time is falling. But I think they get lost in the heat of the battle because they talk about inflation and blah, blah, blah. But, I mean, inflation is exactly predictable by, by demographics. I mean, I've got tons of charts that I use that's just, you know, we know where it's going. That's why Japan did the same. But yet they don't talk about it at all because maybe they would make different choices. Uh, had they done that, had they thought about it in advance properly, maybe the choices would not have been quantitative easing. Uh, maybe there's other choices they could have made to entice consumption amongst the millennials or something to offset this huge kind of, you know, the, the, the lump in the python that the python swallowed, which is the baby boom generation going through the demographics. So, you know, I get what you're saying, that, they're, that they, sh- they do understand, but I just don't think it's... They thought it through. Right. And, and they really, you know, like these forces that you're talking about are bigger than anything that they're capable of uh, ameliorating, really. Um, but I, one thing I think about is, you know, what are these what are these things? How are these things talked about behind closed doors? And if, you know, the central banks do, you know, during the next downturn, you know, turn toward the fiscal authorities and say, guys, we're at zero percent interest rates. We know negative rates don't work. The the bond buying maybe could help asset prices a little bit, maybe, but we can't really help the economy without you guys. And if fiscal authorities decide to get very aggressive uh, and with central banks monetizing that uh, aggression, uh, isn't that, I mean, and, and like we're, we're, I'm getting many steps ahead of where we are today, but that's one of the things that I think about and worry about too, is that, that that's a possibility and that could be massively inflationary. If it was, then Switzerland would have huge inflation and so would Japan. I, there is, and it's not necessarily good for asset prices, as we've seen in in Japan. So I'm not sure at what level of quantitative easing needs to happen to offset all of this, so much so that you can upset the apple cart the other way. I just... I just don't see that it's possible. Yeah, I, I'm not saying that. I don't think central banks can create inflation the way that they believe they can through quantitative easing. I think, you know, the fiscal authorities decide to build a wall on the Mexican border. And when we have already 4% unemployment um, and there just aren't the people to be hired to do that work. But they say, well, all right, we'll, we'll pay 30 40 $50 an hour for anybody who wants to come do this. You know, that's where you could start to see... Um, no, because it uh, didn't happen in Japan either, right? So Japan had no immigration. 
they had less people in the labor force. What's happened in Japan is basically GDP per capita has gone up. Wages have gone up a little bit, but not a lot. Um, and don't forget, as we develop technology, the aggregate level or, or cost of input, labor input, if you include robots as labor input, over time that will balance out too. So I, I don't see it. I don't see suddenly, you know, there's just, you know, labor will be able to define what price that they, they want to get paid at. I don't think those days are here anymore. You know, okay. it, it was a big competition that happened. If you look at inflation, when did inflation start? It started when this group of people hit their 20s. So from if they were born in the 50s, they hit, if they were born in the early 50s, the average boomer, well, the average boomer by, by, uh, by 1979 was 29 years old. At 29 years old, they were buying, you know, they were in the depths of their biggest consumption rate of change, the important part, ever. Their first car, their first house, their first suit, their first, you know, table, their first chair, their first carpet, their first everything. The largest group of people on earth went out and bought things at the same time. And what happened is the world wasn't ready for the demand shock and the price of everything went up, including labor. But we're the opposite way around now. You know, and, and so how do you see the, the, how, how do you see the millennials fitting into that demographic equation? Well, they were kind of a lost generation in Japan because they never, even though they're a large group of people, their mindset is not the same. They're not prolific investors. They're not prolific spenders. And I don't think they will be. Of course, they will do some and they will buy some houses unless something changes. Now, the thing that I think needs to change is if you allow asset prices to change hands from one group to the other at the right price, then things would balance out and the, the millennial generation would be able to prosper. But you can't expect them to invest in an economy or in a stock market or in asset prices at all-time highs when they're so young because all you're going to do is compound losses over a period of time. You really need the baby boomers to take the losses and then figure it out with the younger generation later. Whether that means that parents move in with their kids and stuff like that, yeah, I think that has to happen. You know, somehow this disconnect, this macroeconomic imbalance has to get corrected. And it won't be from dragging out over ever, forever because these guys are going to both retire and die off in the next 20 years. So somebody's going to have to figure this out pretty quick. Um, but I think allowing things to clear at lower prices actually allows a lot of good things to happen. But there's pain. Somebody's going to have to take some pain which is difficult. You know, is it the boomers that take the pain from lower asset prices or is it the millennials um, that take the pain from having to buy those high asset prices? I don't know. Yeah, interesting. And, you know, it's for me, I believe in, in cycles and, uh, you know, the idea that things can be extrapolated into the future forever. Uh, you know, once people start believing that concept, you know, you're towards the end of a cycle. <laughs> and I, um, but uh, I've taken up a ton of your time, Raul. I want to thank you very much for, for taking the time to, to chat with me. I, I really appreciate uh, you sharing all of your wisdom with my audience. And um, thank you very much. Not at all. Thoroughly enjoyed it. And that does it for another episode of Super Investors in the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I want to encourage everyone to check out the Real Vision podcast, Adventures in Finance. Grant and Aaron do a terrific job with that. I don't miss an episode. Uh, and if you want to follow Raul on Twitter, he's at RaulGMI. 
As always, I have a number of links and charts, notes related to this conversation at thefelderreport.com. I want to thank everyone for listening, and until next time, buy low, sell high.